Hello and welcome everybody to the Health and Wellness Show. Um, today is July 22nd, 2016 and my name is Elliot and I'll be hosting the show today. Yay! Um, joining <laughs> me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica and Tiffany. Hello. Ironically, Hello. ironically uh, the heart surgeon, Gabby, she's <laughs> going to be joining us today. And, um, and we also don't have Jonathan with us this week. But we hope that those guys will be back very soon and hopefully we'll see them on next week's show. Yes. Um, today on this show, we are going to delve deep into the heart. Yeah. Did you know that the heart is more than just a pump? Did you also know that some people would actually argue that the heart, heart is not a pump at all? Um, it's made up of muscles and neurons and it generates the strongest electromagnetic field of any organ in the human body. In addition to this, the heart has an intelligence of its own, which is why some neurocardiologists refer to it as the heart brain or the fifth brain. With the knowledge of this electromagnetic heart brain, can we begin to tap into different forms of intelligence, such as intuition and wisdom? And what can we do to protect and strengthen this heart brain connection? Interesting questions. <laughs> Hopefully so, we'll but, find the answers by the end of the show. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. So first of all, um, I guess we should just cover some basics. Um, should we start with some heart trivia? Yeah, some heart let's go trivia. with some heart trivia. Okay. So the heart beats 100,000 times a day. And that's about 3 billion times or more in an 80-year lifetime. Blood circulatory volume is about 5 quarts a minute or 2,000 gallons a day. That's a lot of blood. Um, the capillaries are about 40,000 kilometers in length. Uh, other sources say that the capillaries can cover the, uh, the size of like three football fields. Um, uh, the healthy heart rate varies its rate up to 20 beats per minute. It's also called heart rate variability. Um, the, the, the blood-rich organs and capillaries, uh, 60 to 65% of the cells in the heart are neural cells, and about 70% of those are glial cells, not neurons. So when you hear neurons and glial cells, basically you're thinking the brain, but... As Elliot said, the heart is sometimes called the second brain or the fifth brain. Um, the heart produces 2.5 watts of electricity with each heartbeat. And the heart is by far the strongest EM signal produced by the body. So like if you get an EKG done at the hospital, the readings are much stronger than if you get an ECG, which is where they take the electrical readings of your brain. So the EM field of the heart radiates at least 12 to 15 feet beyond the body, and it's easily measurable at three feet. So that's a little heart trivia for today. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, some pretty amazing facts there, actually. Mm. Um I mean, when you when you consider the conventional explanation of what the heart does which is generally just as a mechanical pump. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, among among scientists and uh, among conventional thinking, um, it doesn't take into consideration the possible electric and magnetic effects of the heart. Um, you know, the fact that there's this uh, EMF field that's radiated from the heart, generated by the heart, um, is not really considered in science. And so I think there's there's a lot more research that really needs to be done into this because it could um, provide us with some interesting insights. Yeah, it's true. It's it's like, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, ask a, a conventional thinker that just thinks that the heart is a pump. Well, why are all those neuron cells there? Mm-hmm. Like, what what is that there for if it's if it's not serving any other function than just to uh, to to pump? Like, you'd think the communication between the brain and the heart would be pretty simple if there was if it was nothing more than uh, hey, keep on pumping. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't think that that would take a lot. So it's like, what's what's really going on there? And I would have to ask this question: like, um, people have tried to make artificial hearts that pump blood, and they never work for very long. Why not? If the heart is just a pump, seems like it should do the trick, right? Yeah. You know, pumps were invented a long time ago. You'd think they would have perfected by now to be able to (laughs) mimic the pumping apparatus of the heart. So what's really going on there? Well, I think the electromagnetic thing, too, is interesting because, you know, you think about um, when life happens, the first thing that you know is the the beating of the heart. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing that happens in the womb, you know. I actually had something on that. Um, Let's see if I can find it. Oh, the heart forms and starts beating before the brain is developed in fetuses. Hmm. And actually, before the heart even forms, there is blood circulation in fetuses. So you can't say 100% that the heart is pumping the actual blood. And from what I've read, and Rudolf Steiner is probably one of the first people who've come up with this idea that the heart is not a pump, he says that the blood has its own momentum. It moves on its own through its own energy. And the heart is just a way to collect or to provide a little bit of force, but it actually Mm -hmm. isn't responsible for moving the blood throughout the heart. Because if you think about the fact that it's like the distance, if you lay out all the blood vessels, it's from San Francisco to New York or like 3,000 miles. And you're saying that this heart pushes the blood towards New York and then back towards San Francisco all those times a day, every day of your life. It doesn't make that much sense. And also, when your your blood is flowing down your body through your your veins or your your arteries and then it gets to where the arteries branch out and it reaches the capillaries the red blood cells are actually bigger in diameter than the capillaries how does the red blood cells get there get into the capillaries i don't know i don't know either i would love to know the answer to that i think um i think rudolf steiner was clearly way ahead of his time um, mm-hmm. And it's only recently that that people are really beginning to shine light on this. Um, like, for instance, the work of um, Dr. Gerald Pollock, mm-hmm. uh, his laboratory for the past 20 years or so, if longer, um, they've come up with some fascinating um, experiments. I don't want to, you know, move away from the topic at hand, but, um, 
you know, Gerald Pollock would state that it, 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 it's the blood that um, gives itself its own momentum via mm-hmm. um, what is called the exclusion zone. You know, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. he thinks it's all to do with water and how water absorbs radiant energy and how mm-hmm. this can be used to um, to produce flow. And what's also really interesting is that um, it's been shown that in the heart, um, when when blood is pumped through the heart um it it creates a vortex Mm -hmm. so a vortex is created and 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 it's interesting to see that Gerald Pollock and and such and his researchers um they 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 have actually found that when water or when a, a liquid is um spun through a vortex it increases this energy flow mm-hmm. and that may be one of you know that may be one of the answers or, or contribute toward the answer of why the blood does move but then that brings us to a really important question as to what does the heart actually do if mm-hmm. if its main function isn't necessarily to pump the blood um and mm-hmm. that may be a byproduct of what it does then then what does it do <laughs> well, and i think there there's some sorry, theories of that go ahead go ahead Doug. Yeah. There, there, there's one kind of, uh, kind of the main competing um, theory against kind of the propulsion, the pressure, what's called the pre- pressure propulsion premise, um, which is kind of the conventional view of how the heart works, that it's a pump and that it's build, builds up pressure and that's how it manages to circulate all the blood throughout the body. And this is actually, a, a lot of people have looked deeply into this and apparently it can't be done physics wise. Um, but one of the competing um, theories of it does involve this whole vortex And apparently um, the heart itself is, you know, while um, people seem to think that uh, the ventricle wall is actually um, of a uniform uh, thickness, it actually is much, much thinner at one end than it is Mm -hmm. at the other. And that that actually creates a cone type shape. So this premise basically states that this is what helps to create that vortex Mm -hmm. by putting it through this kind of conical shape. It creates a, a, a vort like a spin for the blood, and that's how it actually manages to propel itself all throughout the body. So that the the, the heart isn't actually pumping the blood, but it's more just um, creating that spin so that it can get mm-hmm. throughout all the different blood vessels. And Victor Schauberger says that the inner surface of the blood vessels have a spiral shape, and that mm-hmm. there is a temperature difference between the core of your body and your extremities an electromagnetic charge difference between the arterial blood and the venous blood, and that all of those things support the circulatory action. And then other people have said um, that the true function of the heart is to regulate the inward and outward pulsations of the energy field. I'm not quite exactly sure what that means, but the heart does have an energy field. And so I guess they're saying that this field has a pulsation that is some for some reason necessary, or for some reason we don't know what it is. Um, mm. And they've also, well, I've also read that each cell in the body pulsates and it replaces blood constantly. So that might be an explanation for the blood circulating through the body. Well, it turns out that the heart has some pretty amazing electrical and magnetic properties, um, which are still relatively unknown in conventional science. Um, But Mm -hmm. research is now showing that the heart is far more than a simple pump. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I've got some interesting facts here about the heart. What they're finding out nowadays is um, the heart is, in fact, a highly complex information processing center with its own functional brain that communicates with every other system in the body. It's often referred referred to as the heart brain or the cardiac nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, it has four modes of communication that we know of. Um, one is, is via the nervous system. So it's neurological. Another one is biochemical via the release of, um, hormones because it's actually been found to release hormones now. And, uh, another one is, and then the fourth mode of communication, which I think is the most in the most focused on in research now is, um, via electromagnetic fields. Mm-hmm. So what one of the researchers stated was that the heart is a non-linear harmonic oscillatory system and it contains pacemaker cells which are the um the base of where the electric field is actually produced mm-hmm. um it also produces a magnetic field uh, these two combine to to form um an electromagnetic field which is theorized to be up to 5000 times more powerful than the electromagnetic field produced by the by the brain, um, mm. and that's quite a staggering amount. I'm not sure exactly how they measured that. I have mm. read some other um, ideas about how it may be 60 times or 100 times, but this one mm. is 5,000 times. So I'd be interested to see how how they did exactly measure that. Mm. Um, yeah. But as as Tiffany stated earlier, I mean this uh, this electromagnetic field can be easily detected. Uh, three feet away from the body. And some people actually speculate that this electromagnetic field may go on indefinitely. Mm. Um, they're not entirely sure about it. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I had read 50 feet somewhere, but indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how they would be able to say that, but you know, it's, mm. I guess it's, it's a possibility. Yeah. Uh, another thing is that the, the heart brain or the cardiac nervous system, um, they contain neural circuitry that enables it to function independently of the cranial brain in your head. So, mm. by the way, if, if I refer to cranial brain, I'm talking about the brain in your head. Um, <laughs> I'll just say brain because we're talking about the heart brain. <laughs> you know, it might mm. confuse people. So I'll just refer to it as the cranial brain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's connected to the brain via the vagus nerve. Um, and there's also a few other tracks that connect it. But the the most interesting point is that the majority of the nerve fibers in the vagus nerve are afferent, which means that they um, they are. Um, they carry information to the brain from another part of the body. So if you see ascending nerve it means that one part of your body your peripheral nervous system is carrying information to the brain and the spinal cord mm-hmm. um, now to add to this more of these ascending neural pathways are related to heart and cardiovascular system than any other organ in the body so what this means is that the heart sends more information to the brain than the brain sends to the heart so mm-hmm. the idea that the brain controls the heart is not necessarily backed up by the research now. Um, hmm. it, you know, it seems like they're two distinct entities almost, um, and they function synergistically rather than independently of one another. Hmm. It could be that the brain just supplies some of the electrical uh, 
uh, impulse to the AV and the SA nodes in the heart. And that's pretty much what it does. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there's so much that we don't know. It's kind of just speculation at this point. Because totally, people, yeah. yeah, like mainstream medicine thinks they have it all nailed down, like the heart is a pump and it does this and that, but really it's so much more than that. And there's no way <laughs> yeah. that we can know of just being laypersons or lay people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I came across this other interesting tidbit that like really pumps up the ketogenic diet. Um, when we're talking about the heart not being a pump, one guy says that, um, Water from our food and oxygen are the pumps in our body. So when you take in food, you know, it creates water. So he says that from protein, we get two grams of water. From carbs, we get six grams. And from fat, we get 14 to 18 grams of water. Wow. So the more that your muscles are metabolizing fatty acids, then the better your circulation is. So I thought that was interesting. Interesting. Awesome. <laughs> it, it's well, also stated that your heart is an endocrine, endocrine, endocrine. gland. Yeah, right. it puts yeah. out peptides that regulate your blood pressure. Yeah, it secretes something called um, atrial natriuretic peptide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a new, a few other hormones that are actually being found that the that the heart plays a role in. Oxytocin, um, the love oh, yes, hormone. <laughs> yeah, oxytocin. It, it was actually found that it secretes just as much as the brain does. Wow. So mm. the heart, yeah, the heart, this, you know, this amazing hormone, like, uh, for those of you who don't know what oxytocin is, when uh, a mother gives birth to a child, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, a strong surge of o- oxytocin that induces this feeling of love and appreciation and um, happiness, essentially, and they call it the love hormone. And, um, yeah, so the heart is actually, um, you know, it it produces just as much as the brain. And that's absolutely Mm -hmm. fascinating because Mm -hmm. it it was only a few years ago that they didn't think that the heart, they didn't even know that the heart secreted any hormones. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if we have all this beating going on heartbeats all day long and we think that it (laughs) it goes at a steady rate but really it doesn't and it shouldn't so heart rate variability it's like the difference in time between like say one time your heart beats like there's two seconds between each beat and then maybe another time it's like four seconds between each beat so that's called heart rate variability. And this is actually something that we want our hearts to be doing. Mm. What do you guys know about heart rate variability? <laughs> it's variable. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, this idea that the heart should stay the same all of the time, you know, that, that is quite clearly being disproven. Um, and what is interesting is that, when the heart has low variability, in fact, just to clear this up, heart rate variability is the measurement. It, it basically represents um, the time differences between successive heartbeats. So mm-hmm. the time in between each beat. And um, <laughs> so they used to think that this was this should stay v- relatively um, 
they should stay the same a lot of the time and, and that that would mean that you're healthy that you have a healthy heart but what they actually found was that if you have low heart rate va- variability so it stays the same a lot of the time if you have that then um i think it's something crazy like you're you're 10 times as likely to to die of a heart attack or mm-hmm. it's when people are on their deathbed when they're closing to death um that's when the heart rate variability completely drops and they have this steady heartbeat and clinicians are actually using it as a way to tell whether someone has got some form of heart disease or something like that mm-hmm. um so yeah it's very interesting this this heart rate variability and there's a lot of people who are actually um they're trying to use this as a measurement um for overall health emotional stability and um you know not just not just the health of your heart but the health of your whole system because the idea is that um if the system is working um properly then you should have quite a variable heartbeat mm-hmm. rather than a non-variable one and you know Elliot something you just said just made me remember something (laughs) I have to say it before I forget it but you said like people on their deathbeds have this steady heart rate so at one point I was a hospice nurse I went out to this guy's house and listened to his heart and his heart was beating I can't remember if it was steady or not so I'm just gonna say you know whatever but I went to get his blood pressure I couldn't get his blood pressure but he was obviously still alive. <laughs> so that just lends even more credence. The heart, his heart was not pumping his blood, obviously, but his heart was still beating. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was, um, you know, coming across this whole heart rate variability thing, I was trying to think to myself, you know, why? Why would this be the case? Like, why would it be more healthy to have a, a heart rate that is inconsistent rather than consistent? And I was thinking about it. I was like, well, maybe, you know, the variability, um, you know, maybe the, the reason that a heartbeat varies is that it's kind of taking in uh, information from, you know, the rest of the organism or the outside environment or something like that and adjusting according to that. So maybe if a heart is not, um, you know, in communication anymore with other parts of the body or with the outside environment, that's when it stops um, this variableness. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of... Um, uh, just kind of starts going at, at, a, at a very steady rate. Because I know they've found that uh, people who are tend to be very overwhelmed by stress or depression or something like that tend to have less heart rate variability. So I wonder if it's got kind of like closing off from, from the environment that leads to that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, picking think- up signals from the environment too. Like if you, um, you know, are just doing your regular day-to-day thing and and something scares you, whatever it is, all of a sudden your heart starts beating much faster and it's almost like a signal Mm -hmm. in the body from the outside environment, you know, pay attention. Mm -hmm. Something's up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a very good point. It's almost like it's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a healthy response to be able to interact and respond to the environment in an uh, appropriate way. And Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. um, it it is appropriate to pump more heart, uh, pump more blood around the body even though that might not even be what the heart does. <laughs> you know, uh, it, is in, it is important to increase that heart rate because, you know, you're, you're potentially mobilizing your muscles with energy because you may be in a, a difficult situation that you have to, um, you have to fight or flight, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I guess if someone's heart rate variability is relatively low, then what it signifies is that their body has given up or is no longer able to respond appropriately to that environment. Mm -hmm. Maybe because that environment has been so hostile. Um, It could be, you know, physiologically, it could even be emotionally. Like, as you said, people who are, who are suffering from chronic stress, um, Mm -hmm. people who are, who are grieving for, for the loss of a loved one. Um, and it may be that their body has, has maybe temporarily given up the, um, or lost the ability to, to respond in that way. Yeah. Or maybe the the heart acts as a metronome that keeps all the other, uh, cells and organs of your body, like in sync, or maybe like, um, it kind of orchestrates the biorhythms so when it gets out of whack, you know, you don't have this coherence that will lend to health. I don't know. Mm. That's just theory. It's well, really I was thinking that I was thinking Sorry, that maybe, maybe it, um, uh, maybe like heart rate variability sounds to me like it's more like a symptom than anything else. And, you know, since since th- this has become a very hot topic lately and a lot of people are writing about uh, heart rate variability and everybody's kind of coming up with these ways to, you know, make your heart rate more variable. And I wonder if that's just another kind of situation where people are working with the symptom instead of working with the actual cause mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, heart rate variability in and of itself might not be the thing that you really need to be working on, but maybe what's causing that lack of variability. I don't know. I'm just speculating here. Well, no, somebody a- in our, our chat room asks, what about the effects of cell phones on Wi-Fi? Uh, I think we can yeah, all yeah. Uh, simultaneously agree <laughs> that it's not good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> there, there are some interesting um, studies about that, actually. Um, I think first we have to... Uh, it's, it's interesting that what you mentioned, Doug, and it's also interesting that um, you mentioned the word coherence, Tiff. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is a, a concept that a lot of scientists are talking about now, especially um, scientists who are researching the heart. And they speak about coherence and coherent domains. It's, it's a concept that's used in physics, a lot of quantum physics, but it also applies to biology and chemistry. And um, they talk about something called physiological coherence. So this is a term that's used to describe the degree of order harmony and stability of rhythmic activities within a living system. So basically, a coherent system consists of many different parts. And if if you were to zoom in on each of those different parts, it may seem like they're behaving erratically. Mm-hmm. But when you zoom out, you zoom out macroscopically, you realize you see in this system that all of those parts flow together and they function really efficiently and they work perfectly together as a whole. If that makes any sense, mm-hmm. you know, so um, to describe living systems and physical systems. And so if, if we if we take that concept and then we flip it on its head and we try to understand what incoherence is. And so when this is applied to the heart, um, heart coherence, can, it basically the way that they measure this is by heart rate variability. So they try to determine. De- to determine someone's coherence or heart coherence by measuring their heart rate variability. The way that they would say um, heart heart incoherence is, 
is um, it's a discordant, erratic and irregular rhythm. Um, it, it, the function, um, it reflects stress, inefficient uh, utilization of energy and basically how all of those parts are not working together coherently. Whereas on the other hand, when 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 the heart is is functioning coherently, um, it's said to pull other biological oscillators into synchronization with its own rhythms. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, when when the um, when the heart is beating at a certain rate and um, and there is physiological coherence, as is called, then um, it, in, it basically entrains all of the different oscillatory systems in the body um, to almost work together with one another. So respiration rate, um, that would be your, your breathing rate that, you know, your, your, um, your heart rate. Um, it would be perhaps even your cell cycle. I I don't know, but Mm -hmm. the idea is, is that this coherence is reflected in that heart rate variability. And what you said, Doug, about it being a symptom of, of, of something. Um, I think they posit that this, this altered heart rate variability is actually a symptom of incoherent um, physiological mm-hmm. systems. You know, mm-hmm. and I guess if you were to look at this from a, a, um, a pers- perspective which considers information theory, they, it talks a lot about coherence and organization and then entropy and incoherence. And, and I guess if you take into consideration our modern lifestyle, um, would you guys say that, the average human does live a uh, does live in a state of physiological coherence. No, you know no. exactly. No. <laughs> hey, guess what, no. guys? Gabby is here. What? Hello, ah. hello, Gabby. We heart you. I didn't actually miss the show. It's just it's, there was too much work at work. <laughs> oh. Okay. So we'll hand the show over to you, Gabby. <laughs> Go. Hey. We have the heart surgeon. <laughs> you know, well, after, yes, you know, it's one of my favorite organs. It's just so fascinating <laughs> because of the things you guys are discussing. It's fascinating. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, I chose many, many years ago to be a heart surgeon on uh, 2001 just because I was so fascinated by the physiology and how it worked and how it pumped, you know. And um, eventually, I realized it was literally a mechanical way of <laughs> of functioning. That there is much to it than just the heart pump, literally. And uh, but I think it is. I I, I caught the, the the discussion about heart rate variability and coherence. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Elliot, you were talking more about an energetic level. Is that right? Um. Yeah. 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 On okay. on, on a, perhaps an electrical level. Mm-hmm. I think that is very interesting because, like, we don't. Well, there is all this research coming out now, and we uh, we're realizing how, like, you know, out of sync we are, so to speak, electromagnetic wave toxicity and so forth. But uh, about the heart rate variability, I think it is a very interesting concept because, uh, for example, among the psychologists or even therapists like yoga therapists and any body work, uh, a therapist that does any body work, um, there are a lot of things that they see in their patients or their um, individuals seeking therapy, emotional issues, um, everything that, yes, you can communicate, but I think the importance of heart rate variability 
is that it's a physiological parameter that you can check out to see, for example, how stressed the person is or not, or how sick or mm. ill the person is or not, on a psychological level, not not not, not necessarily a specific illness, but on a mm. on a psychological level. For example, uh, people can say, "Oh no, I have no stress. I'm I'm fine in this period of my life. I'm doing great." And then you check the heart rate variability, and it, and it kind of sucks. And so you know that the person. <laughs> <laughs> have an issues reading uh, the body signs. Their body is saying the, the body says no, and the person is having issues reading his uh, the body signs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for example, there, there there's been studies now with these physiological parameters. Everybody's tr- is uh, finally communicating between each other with a more objective language, so to speak. It is almost mathematical. For example. They have done studies of women that were raped or abused, and um, they compared them with, you know, relatively healthy women. And yes, abused women will always have problems with the heart rate variability, you know. Mm. And wow. uh, also, yeah, and also autistic children, for example. So when you do a certain type of body work, even if it's only music therapy in the case of uh, autistic children, because it affects some of the neural uh, parameters connected with the heart via the vagus nerve, what we know as polyvagal theory. Um, when you treat a person with music therapy, it heals uh, via the vagus nerve, it heals all the all the pathways and the heart rate variability can improve. That's just one example. You know, it could be also with breathing exercises, singing, you know, and, uh, and any body work that really touches the heart, literally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's why I always thought it was so tragic, like, uh, working with kids with epilepsy and they would try everything, you know, to stop, you know, except the ketogenic diet. And they would sometimes go in and sever their vagus nerve. And that was just so oh. horrific. Oh. Yeah. Such it's a like terrible thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. That sounds it's interesting what you're saying, Gabby, because um, I, think, I think that's actually, you know, one of the symptoms of an incoherent pattern is that people tend to not be in touch with what they're really feeling or what they're, what they're really going through. And, you know, you ask them how they're doing, they're like, oh, I'm fine. When, you know, really, if you were to do some sort of objective testing, you'd find that they were not fine. So I think mm-hmm. that it, it's very interesting that the more, more incoherent a person gets, the less in touch they are with actually how they're doing and how, what's actually going on with them. It's almost like a, they, they shut down in some way. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it highlights um, the importance of of dealing with your emotions, of of um, of dealing with your own psychological issues, of if you have any um, you know trauma in the past or anything like that, because this isn't merely a physiological phenomenon. Like, it's not necessarily that you've got some illness. Like you've, as you said, Gabby, it's not like you've uh, you know say you've you've got a, a tumor in your heart or something. <laughs> like, yes, <laughs> it, it can be merely emotional. And, and it's, mm. it's almost like on a, on an informational level, like an energetic level that, that, that emotional trauma or those, those emotional issues that someone faces, um, they, they translate to an illness, but it's not necessarily mm. something that you can see on a scan, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It can tell about disease, uh, before it manifests, you know, if we know about the psychosomatic nature of certain diseases, you know, 
if a person is highly stressed for a long period of time, it will show up before in these, you know, through these physiological parameters. You know, I think um, it might be a good time to go to our first clip because I think that kind of deals with some of this stuff. Is it the heart as a perception organ? Yes. You talk quite a bit in your book about the heart, especially as a perceptual organ, and how that relates to the plant world. And this is the way that I think that that communication occurs, even though it's nonverbal. You know, where is the wavelength where we actually connect with the plant and it does the same thing back with us? Right. Well, to, to back up a little bit then and look at the heart as an organ of perception, most ancient and indigenous peoples, if they were asked where they lived in their body, they would gesture to the region of the chest. And we're really the first culture in the West, uh, these Western cultures, where if you ask somebody where they live in their body, they're usually going to point about an inch above their eyebrows. And, you know, they feel it's like about two inches into the skull from that. But that's a relatively modern phenomenon. And it turns out consciousness is extremely fluid. It can locate to any of the large biological oscillators in the body. The heart is the most powerful one. And as it beats, it produces this electromagnetic field that's 5,000 times stronger than the brain's. And so there's this electromagnetic field that's strongest at about, oh, 12 to 18 inches from the body, but it continues out pretty much indefinitely beyond that. One of the things that happens, and everybody's had this kind of experience where, you know, there's kind of two ways to talk about it. One is, you know, you're walking with a friend on the sidewalk, and the two of you then start walking um, in synchrony with each other. You match your strides. And if you intentionally mix up your stride, it's very disorienting to people. We have a natural ability to synchronize our movements. And the other thing is, for instance, People have a real experience of the heart field, though they don't call it that. If what they they know of it is, is like when somebody's in your space. If somebody gets, uh, you know, closer than about 18 to 12 inches, you can feel they're sort of in your space, and that's where they're inside the strongest um, extension of your heart field. So, one of the things that I looked at in depth in that particular book was that. When people go to sit with plants and work with plants more deeply, whether you're talking about indigenous peoples or our our Gerta, our Barbara McClintock, who won the Nobel Prize for her work with corn tamps, Franz Ponsons, our Masanobu Fukuoka, one of the things that they did is that they would essentially establish that same kind of synchronization with the plant. So they kind of slow down, the plant kind of speeds up a little bit, and what happens is the two electromagnetic fields that both organisms have synchronize with each other. And in that moment, there's this tremendous exchange of information that goes both ways from the person to the plant and from the plant to the person. Uh, James Hillman, who was a rather remarkable man, you know, he said the ancient Greeks called that moment of synchronization like that a moment of aesthesis. It's where you know, once you're touched and you're touching like that, you can feel something leave your body and something, you know, coming from out there entering your body. And it's, you know, accompanied by this gasp or this deep inspiration, this breathing in. And it's the moment where there's this exchange of soul essence between a human and 
and a life form outside themselves. And for the ancient Athenians, that was where true inspiration came. But once you have that kind of bonding or synchrony with another living organism, whether it's your dog or your mate or a plant, there's a, a massive exchange of information that can become phenomenally sophisticated and extremely deep if you wish to take it that far. Hmm. Well, I meant to actually introduce that clip. <laughs> so that, that was uh, Stephen Herod Buna um, being interviewed, and he was the author. He's an author of many books, but uh, one of them being The, the Secret Teaching of Plants. Um, and he talks a lot in that book about using the heart as this kind of organ of perception. And he talks about it um, in a lot of different ways, but he, he mainly is talking about how it's uh, possible to use this kind of sensory um, uh, function of the heart to actually commune with plants, but also to commune with animals and, and other humans and that sort of thing. So, That's absolutely fascinating, Doug. Um, mm. What is I find very interesting um, is the idea that <clears throat> there is some form of energetic communication between two distinct separate bodies, um, mm. whether it be a, a human to a plant, a plant to a human, or humans to other humans, and perhaps even humans to the earth. You know, mm. uh, I mean, it, it would be hard to measure something like that, and I, I know that there's not much research that's actually been done on it, but there is some fascinating research that has picked up on some connections between, um, between human beings and human beings. Um, mm -hmm. and what, what the research, the aim, the aim of the experiment was to find whether there was any evidence that, um, the electromagnetic fields produced by our heart can have a, an objective effect on those around us. Mm -hmm. And, um, they call this type of communication, they call it cardio-electromagnetic communication. Uh, that's mm. what it's known by uh, neurocardiologists. And um, so they set up these experiments, and what they planned to do was to um, – they were measuring brain waves. So they were me measuring um, via something called an EEG scanner. Um, and then they were also measuring um, – ECGs. So I, th I think Gabby is that is that is that the the heart rate using an ECG electrocardiogram? It's the electrical activity of the heart. Yes. Yes. Which is okay. uh, the trace is more um, it's more energetic, so to speak, than the electrical activity of the brain. It gives you a lot of information. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, they were using they were using those two methods. And one of the experiments um, showed that two people, when they held hands, um, it, it, it's quite amazing what they found, actually. Uh, holding hands managed to synchronize one person's alpha brain waves with, a, with another, uh, another person's cardiac waves. So hmm. um, what, what they concluded from these results were that the brain is able to respond and synchronize with an extremely weak EMF field generated by other people's hearts. So <laughs> if you're holding hands with someone, then your brain, your brain waves automatically synchronize with 
their hearts. Now, I'm not sure how many times this was um, this was repeated, so I don't know how reliable it is. But the fact that they found it in the experiment is quite fascinating, because yeah. how often? I mean, say two people in a in a relationship. Um, how often are they holding hands or touching or hugging each other uh, when you go to bed and, you know, you're, you're touching each other in the nighttime, skin on skin contact. And they've also found that couples, when they're asleep at night, their, mm-hmm. um, their cardiac rhythm synchronized as well. Oh. Um, <laughs> so it's basically so then- like the, the nervous system, including the heart, acts like an antenna and it just picks mm-hmm. up on, yeah. Yeah, like that yeah. saying, who feels it and knows it. <laughs> and that's just the thing. I mean, I think, I think we've all had experiences, like Buner was talking a little bit about uh, different synchronizations, but, you know, how often have you kind of walked into a place maybe and like suddenly been like, eh, this is, this is a bad vibe here. Mm-hmm. And you don't really have a, a, an objective, you know, list of things that are wrong with the environment, but you, what, you just walk into it and you kind of can sense, you have this sense. Yeah. Or on the other hand, it's like when you, when, you know, you go into a place where, you know, maybe a bunch of people you know, or it's a happy environment or something like that. And you kind of, you, you can feel as soon as you walk into the place that there's, there's joy there or that, there, mm-hmm. that it's, that it's a good place. So I think that, you know, we don't have, it's, you know, a lot of times like, you know, scientists might explain that as having like a blink reaction or something that your, your brain kind of reads some cues that you're maybe not aware of and and that's what it's kind of basing these feelings on but i think that uh, that maybe they're discounting that you might actually be able to sense these things mm-hmm. that it's not necessarily the brain that that's giving you all the information that you have that you actually are getting a lot of information maybe from the heart as well mm-hmm. yeah that well, it's both- that idea of intuition you know exactly like you were speaking of walking into a room or even we've all met people where we've gotten a very bad vibe Definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. almost <laughs> <Yes>. instantly. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like Buner was talking about in that clip, like we, we in the West, you know, we, we don't listen to that. We tune it out. We make all these excuses in our brain. And really the heart is giving you some very important information like run as fast as you can. Yeah. I don't yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I mean, that might just be reflective of that whole incoherence that we were talking about before, you know, that you aren't kind of in, if you're not in a coherent state, then maybe you aren't able to tune into that, um, that information that's being given to you, mm-hmm. or you might tune into it in a, in a way that you can easily discount it by, um, by, you know, your brain just says, no, 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 everything's fine mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Well, well yeah, that's a- it because physiologically um it has been shown that even even when two people aren't touching skin uh mm-hmm. even at like conversational difference distance so say you walk into a room and you're a few feet away from someone um your brain does actually synchronize or, or it's been shown that someone's brain does synchronize with their heart even when you're stood a few feet away from them um so perhaps what it is is that we we do have this intuitive ability our heart does um pick up these signals from the environment and communicate it with our brain but quite often we are not in tuned with um with that signal you know we we're not consciously aware of it but our brain is mm-hmm. and so perhaps by by not acknowledging that or not becoming in tune with that that increases that level of incoherence with mm. uh, you know the the organism well, mm-hmm. speaking of being near somebody and not touching, there was also this experiment that I read about where a little boy 
and he had a dog, so they put him in a room together, but they weren't touching each other, and the boy just thought loving thoughts about his dog, and the boy's heart and the dog's heart, their rhythms synchronized. Hmm. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of the concept of limbic resonance, mm-hmm. but mm. kind of like in steroids, <laughs> or <laughs> more death in the definition. Well, it kind of puts the thought in my mind of like, say you're in a relationship and you thought things were going well, you had a, a loving relationship, and one day you catch your spouse in bed with somebody else, and you actually get a broken heart, which is actually <laughs> real. Yeah. 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 The, uh, isn't the broken heart actually a syndrome now? Yes. Isn't it? It's, yes. Yeah. Do you see that often, Gabby? No, it's incredibly rare, but it's been reported more and more often in the um, last few years. Mm-hmm. That I even heard, you know, a ca- about a case locally. And uh, this was something like unheard of, like 15 years ago, maybe. And when mm-hmm. I read about it, it was like, wow. Person had an, an emotional breakup, and the heart literally changed shape. It has a Japanese name. Uh, it's, it's the name a of a takotsubo uh, cardiomyopathy. Yeah, because it's the shape of a recipient they use in Japan, where they put octopus, mm-hmm. and the the heart literally takes that shape. It's actually heart failure. You know, the shape changes. It's uh, fa- uh, and. Uh, but it's reversible. That's the thing. Yeah, the bottom of the heart kind of balloons out temporarily. Yeah. I actually exactly. did see one patient who had that. He was in the psych ward. I don't know. He actually caught his wife or girlfriend in bed with another man. I guess he like totally uh-huh. lost it and he ended up in the psych ward. And this, I didn't usually work up on that floor. I worked down with the old crazy people. And I use the word crazy with all affection. So <laughs> I ended up going up to the psych ward where the younger people were. And he was up there. And I guess he had been complaining that his chest was hurting uh, for like days or so. So I said, oh, let's do an EKG on this guy. And it was totally irregular. And his uh, blood work came back irregular. So they sent him to a cardiac floor. And it was just so weird to me. But I think I had it myself, too, with a uh, yeah? relationship problem. <laughs> yeah, um, I was had a like emotional breakup. And then, you know, one day I was you know going to work and I was just had trouble breathing. I would take these really shallow breaths. I couldn't take a deep breath. And I just felt a tightness in my chest. And my EKG turned out abnormal. So I ended up staying in the <gasps> hospital overnight. And I just took huh. a, a leave, and it went away after a while. But huh. wow, yeah. Well, in in this Broken article about how stress can break your heart, literally, it says that nine out of ten cases of broken heart syndrome are that of betrayed women. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's more frequent in women. But I wonder, you know, it gives you an idea of the emotional, you know, impact and stress that we've been through in the in the last few years because this was something that was not even reported before. It was like, you know, and now it is like, you know, very well recognized and mm-hmm. there's a pattern to it and wow. Well, it would make sense it would affect women too because of the whole, you know, um, 
being able to carry a child and having that, that open heart, so to speak. And, and also, you know, it's been said that women are more in touch with their intuition, that they sense Mm -hmm. and feel things deeper and, you know, not to discount the guys out there at all, (laughs) but, um, it would make sense that, you know, these, this sense of, of feeling good and bad things can overwhelm the system. And, um, mm. you know, if you have too much of it, especially in our world now, a shutting down, a blocking, a closing off because mm-hmm. the organism just becomes overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you, you speak about it becoming overwhelmed because on on a different sort of from a different perspective, um, like we've we've spoken about how perhaps our heart um, or our electromagnetic field picks up on the electromagnetic field of other people. But I I wonder if there's something to this um, in the environment as well, because I was reading about a study um, or it might have been an account from a a doctor, but it was, it was showing some statistics which um, spoke about the geomagnetic field. And it was saying that when the geomagnetic field, when there's um, extraordinary fluctuations in it, so it goes really low or it goes really high, um, or maybe there's some intense storm activity, lots of lightning, uh, whatever it may be, um, there, there's a there's a, a distinct increase of people coming into A and E um, with cardiac problems. So mm-hmm. people have 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 heart attacks or they you know or they think they're having heart attacks or or whatever i was wondering gabby have, have you have you seen anything like that well for me what what strikes me is actually for example people that will arrive in the emergency room with some kind of atrial fibrillation some fibrillation in the heart irregular heart rhythm and uh, it is interesting because it's like a perfect example of lack of coherence between all the electrical activity in the heart. Mm-hmm. And uh, that are, you know, any stressful factor can trigger it, like whether it is a lack of minerals, but also emotional upsets. And um, and some people, yes, will say that, yes, they, they're totally fine in their life and everything, but they still have this abnormal rhythm, you know. Which makes you think about, you know, how how much is it? It is influenced by the energetic environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and that kind of brings back to the uh, to the idea that um, artificial um, uh, electromagnetic signals can can interfere with this sort of thing as well, mm-hmm. like cell phones, Wi-Fi signals, all that sort of thing. Like that can, you know, if you think about the fact that we have this, um, that our heart puts out this. Uh, electromagnetic field and that it's taking in information from the environment as well as maybe sending information as well to be exposed to another electromagnetic signal that could so easily overwhelm that you have to wonder what kind of effect that's actually having like never mind the the lightning storms and that kind of thing like what about uh, the fact that people are walking around with a cell phone in their pocket all the time yeah and i'm very Yes, I'm very sensitive and uh, I have invested in little gadgets to protect me from electromagnetic wave toxicity that we talked on our previous shows. But it is true because there was also an article while preparing for this show, which was saying that 
you don't really have to invest so much money in one of these gadgets. That a simple, you know, thing as having a protection crystal, you know, can do much more for you. Mm-hmm. And I recently got mine, you know, from from the Cassiopeian, you know, website. And I felt the difference immediately, you know, and consistently. Mm-hmm. I th- my solar plexus, it feels like more at ease, less chest mm-hmm. constriction. Wow. I can breathe better. I can, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's like, you know, and I didn't, you know, it didn't cost me like 300 euros or anything. <laughs> That's amazing. Is is there any, because um, I'm not too clued up on crystals. Is there any, um like, structure there is any sort of like uh, reason for that? Is does does the crystal in some way um, absorb electromagnetic radiation, or is is there, or do they just not know? I don't know. I would be lying to you if they, because I don't think it is actually a physical attribute on the crystal, but it is okay. actually the intent behind mm-hmm. that crystal. You know, that's what I my impression. The people who do the Q-Link device, which is a device that's supposed to protect you from EMFs and stuff, yeah. and it, it does have a crystal capacitor in it. Um, yes. What they say is that rather than absorbing or deflecting um, EMF radiation, what it actually does is it strengthens your own field. So it kind of protects you in that way by by strengthening your own field. Again, take that with a grain of salt. I don't know. I don't know what they they have. I have studied. one. I, I have so a Q-Link, I. and yeah. I use both. I now use both the Q-Link and my crystal. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I tend to use the Q Link. Uh, I, I tend to use the Q Link when I go um, on airplanes, um, just because you're getting exposed to a lot more radiation in those environments. And I've actually found that it does seem to help with things like jet lag. Like mm-hmm. I don't seem to be nearly as jet lagged as as I used to be. I used to be really affected by by travel, and uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just a placebo, but. Uh, but I've noticed that uh, that since using the Q Link, uh, air travel seems to affect me a lot less. Well, it it would make a lot of sense. I mean, if you consider that there is like a natural electromagnetic field of the Earth, and up until sort of two hundred years ago or something, um, that was pretty much undisturbed in terms of man-made mm. disturbances, and so it, it would be. Um, counterintuitive to believe that somehow all of this non-native EMF that we've suddenly introduced to the world is not having some effect on our ability or our heart's ability um, to maybe either detect EMFs in the environment or, or, you know, perhaps, I mean, it's bound to affect it in some way, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think getting up to speed on, on, on learning about EMFs and things and take um, to mitigate those effects um, should be really helpful on on all fronts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think disconnecting from that too, like it, like the crystal, but also um, you know we've talked in the past about grounding or hugging mm-hmm. a tree or getting outside and. Uh, like Buner talked about communing with plants, you know, it may sound a little woo woo, but it can also bring you back to that state of coherence and, and mm-hmm. I don't know, even safety mm-hmm. in a sense yeah. where, you know, if you're getting bombarded by this electromagnetic waves and we've talked about this in previous shows 
with cell phone technology, how you feel like you're going bonkers and then you just go lay down in the grass and regroup, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you if you tell someone on the street that you're going to go speak to some plants, then they're probably going to think you're crazy, <laughs> you know. But, when, when you, but they're when speaking you into to, a phone, you know. How crazy is that? Exactly. <laughs> if you'd have said that two hundred, a hundred years ago, even fifty years ago, they'd have called you bonkers. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think when you start looking into this and you realize how little we actually understand um, about these these types of concepts, then. Mm we can't really discount the idea of some level of energetic communication with all beings on this earth and even not on this earth, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of woo woo, but when you look at the science, it's not very woo woo. It's, it's more likely than it's more likely that we do have some sort of communication than we don't, you know? And I think that's, that's really important to understand. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it shines a whole new light on, on, I guess when when people, I mean, there was a few of the articles that spoke about ancient sort of um, spiritual t- traditions that talk about chi and talk about um, different energies and things. And maybe they were, maybe they were onto something back then, and they didn't know how to describe it. They didn't have the science to be able to prove it, you know. And 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 we're we're coming out with this science now that is really, um, it's it's just starting to touch on the idea of these, mm-hmm. these energies and things like that. And so it's, it's really important to keep an open mind about this stuff and, and not to become too fixated on, um, you know, whether there's any evidence for something and, you know, well, evidence <laughs> for the woo woo side of the heart, having its own energy is people who have heart transplants and they start taking <laughs> up the characteristics of their donor. I mean, that yeah. sounds yes. woo woo, but, it's verifiable and it's documented that that happens. There are some really weird stories. For example, <laughs> a patient wants to receive a, a heart, you know, organ from a donor who was murdered. And the recipient of the heart, you know, started, started having like nightmares, like PTSD symptoms. And uh, eventually he was able to name uh, the person who killed, you know, the the victim mm-hmm. and where he could be found, you know, and this was just because, you know, some sort of memory that was also transplanted with the heart organ. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. You know, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But there it's was just a pump. <laughs> it's just a well, pump. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but there was, that other, there was another case. Um, it was uh, a boy was, was um, he died. He died and he decided before he was going to die that he would donate his organs to um, scientific research or uh, transplantation. And so um, this one guy, he, he had the heart transplant. And um, a few years later, he um, he went to, to visit the family because he, he as soon as he had the heart transplant, he had this need, this 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 urge to to get in contact with the family, to thank them and to get to know them. So he went to visit the family and upon uh, laying his eyes on the um, the donor's sister, um, he said that he felt this extremely amazing energetic connection with her. It was like uh, love at first sight, as they say. <laughs> and um <laughs> And they, they, they communicated for sort of 10 years. She was quite a lot older than him. 
So um, they they communicated, then they lost communication, but then they um, they started speaking again, like seven years later or something, and um, and they met up, and and now I think they're husband and wife, uh, mm-hmm. and they say they both swear that there is some energetic communication between between them that they've mm-hmm. never felt before, and that um, and that somehow, yeah, there's just this love at first sight thing, and I thought that was <laughs> that was amazing because what if there's some, I guess, maybe in the DNA of the heart or something like that. Like we were talking, I think it was last week's show or the show before that, about how maybe um, maybe DNA has some information storage capacity that, mm-hmm. you know, isn't necessarily physical. And so if the DNA in that heart is transplanted to another body, then, I mean, <laughs> I don't so even know. Infor- yeah, so it's information then, you know. And yeah. memories, the heart stores memories, apparently. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So do we want to play so, this other clip? Or I was just going to say the same thing. Okay. Yeah. So this is uh, Stephen Harry Buner again um, in an interview. And I think he's talking here about kind of our modern disconnect from, from the function of the heart. Okay. What do you hope people most get from your books? What I really hope most people get is to understand that it's their capacity to feel that gives them that bond and that connection with the natural world. Over the last 35 years of my teaching, when I teach workshops and speak, it's invariably true that somebody will come up after the workshop or during a break and say, you know, thank you so much for talking about this because for many years I thought, I was really crazy because I could feel all these communications from the natural world and everybody kept telling me I was making it up. And that thing, there's a more ancient way of knowing this deeper bond of connection with the world that's possible through our feeling sense for all human beings. And really it's the most natural thing to us. Children do it automatically. Little girls sit under trees talking with flowers all the time. You see, children know that the world is intelligent, alive, and aware. Mm -hmm. They have to be told over and over and over again before they finally begin to give up that belief. I know it was a marvelous thing to grow up with a mother that was very free-thinking just like that, where she allowed the imagination of the stories to pour forth. And it gets to a point where you actually can feel and perceive the world in that wonderful way that you think, you know, why not have the conversation? I mean, it couldn't be any worse than having a conversation with somebody who might be a little nuts, you know, but it's still enjoyable nevertheless. So it's a wonderful thing. You see, so many people are taking antidepressants of various sorts now because they feel isolated. Robert Bly had a great way of putting it years ago. He said, you know, we've been taught that we're just on a ball of resources hurtling around the sun, and so human beings live abandoned inside their own house, and occasionally they look out the windows with, at an environment with which they have no meaningful contact. And there's a reason why so many people in the West feel their lives are meaningless. And it's that reconnectivity of the feeling sense to the world that really allows us to know we're companioned by intelligent, aware, and sold phenomena that we're not really alone that way. Mm-hmm. You know, the other thing I find uh, fascinating, too, is when you bring up the West and the way that we tend to think we should be living, it's all about success and material gain, it seems like. And 
when you take a look at people who, for instance, may not have achieved for what their neighbors have, you know, you try that keeping up with the Joneses ideal, and they think, you know, I lack. I just don't have enough. You know, there just isn't enough abundance. But yet you take a look at the plant world itself and you find out that you're incredibly abundant for everything that you'll ever need. It's just a matter of mastering yourself enough to have that awareness to know how to have the kind of respect to live in a world like that. Well, you know, we're really trained to orient ourselves towards surfaces. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, it seems that there's a hunger inside people because they can't. There's a great phrase by a German poet, Gottfried Ben, who said, you know, people in the West, you know, they're unable to experience the metaphysical background of the world. They can't go deeper than surfaces. And so when we're stuck in surfaces and oriented there, we have to judge things and what we have by that. But if you can begin to go below the surface of things and rekindle the aesthetic sense, what um, Gregory Bateson said, we've lost the capacity or our sense of aesthetic unity in the West in this culture. And that sense of aesthetic unity then is basically touching the deeper components inside of a thing. And once you do that, you can begin to craft a life that's extremely full of meaning and it's very rewarding, and it doesn't then depend upon the accumulation of a lot of stuff. How much you get, then, is it's different for everybody, but it doesn't mean that you're impoverished. It just means that, that you're oriented along a different kind of aesthetic value. Mm. So I think so, that kind of gives an answer about what we can do to strengthen our hearts and our heart fields and our heart rate variability. Mm. Yeah, working from the concept that, you know, perhaps it's this state of coherence, uh, physiological coherence, uh, that is maybe a, a symptom of what is going on or a manifestation of what is going on on a perhaps an energetic level, an informational level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there's there's probably uh, many things that, that someone can do um, to increase their level of coherence i think um one of them that's mentioned by a, by a lot of research researchers is um is simply doing some simple breathing exercises um to increase um vagal nerve stimulation mm -hmm. now this is something that that you know is is raved about a lot in in many circles of science now and i think it's uh it's very important we need to we need to get back in touch um, with with our breathing, you know, mm -hmm. essentially the way that we were in as as babies, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Does anybody know of any good programs that we can stimulate our vagus nerves with? <laughs> <laughs> Our absolutely most favorite program is Areolas <laughs> at ebreathe.com. Yeah. It is, it is really amazing because it has, uh, it has, it's so complete in a sense, so healing. It has the breathing exercises for relaxation and concentration. It has the breathing exercises for emotional release, you know. 
and uh, breathing exercises for meditation with a very powerful seed, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it also helps um, become, you know, aware of your body. Mm-hmm. So sensation. So what we were talking about earlier, this idea of intuition and, you know, listening to your heart. We hear all these cliche phrases, follow your heart, listen to your heart, have a heart, all these things. And it's really basic knowledge Mm -hmm. but we live Mm -hmm. in such a world where we're trained you know since children i mean children really have this you see them running around being crazy rolling in the grass listening to their heart essentially and then as we grow older we're inundated with stress or environment we close off that aspect of ourself so we become out of touch with our Mm -hmm. own body sensations our own messages so to speak and i think that's you know something that everybody can focus on when you have like one of our chatters talked about being you know a physical sensation when you're around a person that's not good like to really stop and learn to listen Mm -hmm. in a in a very deep sense okay there's something going on here and what do i need to pay attention to because we tend to you know dismiss it or oh you're just feeling too much when Mm -hmm. maybe the key is that feeling too much can be a good thing and it can save your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, another thing I noticed since doing the EE meditation, I noticed very strongly when I first started doing it is that it made me less judgmental towards other people. And it gave me Mm -hmm. uh, a sense of gratitude about Mm -hmm. my situation or the world or my relationships with other people. So it's very powerful program i mean not that you want to be open to everybody like erica said sometimes you just get a really bad vibe and you need to listen to your intuition but other times you know stress or anxiety or feeling inhibited or or shy those kind of things can hold you back from really connecting with other people and you know that's something that you want to do so he can help with that yeah, and that it's like that sense of intuition is is always there. Uh, it's like that that receptacle, that that um, detector. Your heart is always beating. You know, it's it's there. It's just you don't have access to it in your conscious awareness. You haven't developed the capacity to um, become in tuned with with those signals, as as you were just saying, Erica. And the fact that so many people have benefited from programs like Ariolas. Um, I think is, is, is it's, it's, um, perhaps evidence that they are getting back in touch with that natural intuitive sense that they always had, but mm-hmm. that modern life, um, disconnected them from. Mm. They're too busy chasing Pokemon. So is, uh, is there anything else that anyone would like to add? Or are we all right to go to um to Soy's Pet Health segment? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, that's Yes. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya. And today I would like to share with you a recording by Dr. Karen Becker about heart diseases in cats and dogs and the importance of early diagnosis. Hope you'll find it useful. Here it is. 
Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and we're going to discuss heart disease today. Heart disease is heartbreaking for many owners because until your pet exhibits symptoms, most of the time it's a silent killer. So by the time your pet becomes lethargic, coughs, wheeze, has exercise intolerance, um, sounds like it's croupier, like there's fluid in the lungs, by the time dogs and cats both exhibit these symptoms, it can be simply too late. Even more heartbreaking is pets can sound fine at the veterinarian. Veterinarians can't hear the size of the heart. So veterinarians can listen to your pet's heart with a stethoscope and not hear a murmur, and yet there can be gross heart enlargement and, in fact, heart disease, significant heart disease going on before your pet shows clinical symptoms, which is heartbreaking, of course. Both dogs and cats are susceptible to heart disease. There are two types of heart disease that affects both dogs and cats. Number one is mus heart muscular disease, and then there's valvular disease, and dogs and cats can have both. The heart muscle can become enlarged in both dogs and cats. This condition is called cardiomyopathy. There are some breeds that are predisposed to cardiomyopathy, like Newfoundlands, Great Danes, and Dobermans. Uh, there are some dietary deficiencies that can cause heart muscle enlargement. The amino acids taurine and carnitine are both critical for normal heart development and maintenance. And if dog and cat diets are deficient in these two amino acids, heart muscle enlargement can occur secondary to dietary deficiency. Valve health also uh, can cause, can contribute to congestive heart failure and heart disease. Valve, valve, leaky valves or heart murmurs can be genetically predisposed, like the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Or you can also have leaky valves secondary to age or sometimes metabolic conditions, like hyperthyroidism in cats. Heart murmurs are greater on a scale from one being the most mild to six being the worst murmur. And what a leaky valve does is it makes the heart work harder. So eventually the heart muscle, anytime you work a muscle, it gets bigger. And as the heart becomes big, it becomes inefficient. So valve disease predisposes dogs and cats both to congestive heart failure. Traditionally, heart disease is diagnosed either through hearing a murmur, which is the veterinarian listens with the stethoscope, on physical examination uh, and x-rays or EKG or cardiac ultrasound are ways that if we believe heart murmur or heart disease is occurring we can verify our findings through some expensive diagnostic tests. Probably the biggest frustration is most people are not interested, nor do I recommend you drop five, five to seven hundred dollars in some of these tests if you're just interested in being proactive. And yet, if you've lost a dog or cat to heart disease, you realize how neurotic you can make yourself in trying to do everything you can to prevent this from occurring because you had the heartache of having it occur so quietly that you weren't aware that it was happening. So. It's hard to be uh, proactive until recently when it comes to heart disease because you almost have to wait until you're in it before you can identify it. But that has changed. In this last year, veterinary medicine has finally acquired a blood test that can identify early predisposed dogs and cats to heart disease and heart failure. This test is called a pro-BNP test, and the BNP stands for B-type natriuretic peptide. And the, the pro-BNP test is a blood test that measures how much of this peptide hormone that's released from the heart is in circulation. 
This hormone that's released from the heart muscle only releases itself when the heart is stretched beyond normal capacity. So very early in a dog or cat's heart pathology, small amounts of this hormone will be released into the bloodstream. And as heart pathology continues very early in the game, this blood value will continue to rise. So now, instead of worrying that your dog or cat has an issue, you can ask your veterinarian if you have, if your dog or cat has a mom or dad that has died of heart disease, if you want to be proactive and make sure that your dog or cat does not have early heart disease going on, if you have a cat that you want to differentiate respiratory disease, let's say feline asthma, from an underlying heart condition, this is an excellent test to ask for with your veterinarian. And it's easy, simple, it's done with a blood test, the turnaround time is very short, and it can provide a wealth of information. The other great thing about this test is it can, because it's quantitative, it'll give you a number, you're able to repeat the test and make sure that you are meeting your cat and dog's cardiovascular needs as they go through life. So excellent new proactive blood test available to be able to identify very early cardiac changes that can actually prevent your pet from going into heart failure. Wonderful. The second most common thing I can tell you, common sense thing I can tell you to do when it comes to preventing cardiac disease from occurring in your dogs and cats is to make sure that you're meeting your dog and cat's CoQ10 requirement. CoQ10 is a naturally produced coenzyme that dogs and cats make typically when they're younger in abundance and then as dogs and cats age, their ability to produce adequate amounts of CoQ10 diminishes. Coenzyme Q10 uh, can, be can be supplemented or supplied in your pet's diet. And I do recommend that if you have a dog or cat that is predisposed to cardiovascular disease, if you're interested in preventing it, if there's a genetic link that uh, if you have a dog or cat that is a high-risk breed, you supplying extra CoQ10 is buying good, healthy heart insurance that your pet has an abundant supply to be able to effectively deal with um, uh, su supplying adequate CoQ10 for healthy heart muscle. CoQ10 comes in two forms, supplementally ubiquinone and ubiquinol. Ubiquinol is the reduced form of CoQ10 and it's the form that I recommend you supply to dogs and cats if you're interested in nurturing their heart muscle. If you're interested in supplying extra CoQ10 or ubiquinol to your dogs and cats, a nice heart healthy maintenance dose would be 50 milligrams for cats and small dogs once a day, 100 milligrams for medium sized dogs, and for giant dogs 100 milligrams twice a day. Well, thanks for that, Zoya. <laughs> really interesting um, and really important information for anyone who who owns pets. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't. Have, you, have we got a recipe for this week? Or, mm. or heart? You know, if heart, we, we could, uh, eat some heart. Well, yeah, you could uh, <laughs> breathe. That's a good one too. Yeah, get a breathe, go outside, and um, yeah, and try bug. to appreciate nature. Be <laughs> <So> coherent. <laughs> yeah, be be coherent, guys. Follow your heart. <laughs> there you go. Have a heart. <laughs> listen to listen to your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, anyway, thanks, guys. Uh, that's been a great show. Um, mm -hmm. I think, is it, if you guys tune in to radiosot.net, 
I think tomorrow we'll be having, is it a truth perspective or maybe the behind the headlines show? Yeah, but, that's um, Sunday. Sunday though. Yeah. Oh, Sunday. Sorry guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that will be tuned on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Wait, wait, in. Elliot, Elliot, you got to yeah. tell them that we're not going to be here next week. I think oh, you right. just told okay. them, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I forgot about that, guys. Right, okay. Yeah, we're having a break next week. Um, there's quite a few of us who are um, who are busy, and yeah, we just thought we'd take a break. Yeah, we're but, going on Vision Quest next week. We're following our heart. <laughs> <laughs> Becoming coherent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, so we'll be back in two weeks, okay? Okay. Two weeks okay. today. See ya. Uh, yeah, thanks guys. See you in a bit. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.